Welcome to our first episode of Talking in Tacos, where we talk and eat tacos. I'm your host, Chris Olivares. In the elevator, we're about to meet with Lafonza Butler for our first podcast. The pleasure for the people. Our guest today is a partner at SCRB Strategies, a firm described as kingmaker for California's Democratic politicians. She recently served as a senior advisor to the Kamala Harris presidential campaign. Previously, she served as president of SEIU Local 2015, the largest local union in California, and as president of SEIU California State Council, where she led the successful fight to raise the state minimum wage to $15 an hour. She's been described as one of the national talents of a generation and as someone who can work a political meeting as if she's Neo in the Matrix. <laughs> so we ordered some tacos from Guisados. Mm-hmm. It's a local LA spot all over LA. This one's Boyle Heights specifically. I'm gonna do the cheese thing. Cheese thing? Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go straight for some meat. Go for it. Typical Oliveras. I appreciate a good taco. Um, I'd like to give a very warm welcome to LaFonza Butler. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm uh, always surprised when I hear people's description of me. So glad to be here. Good to see you again. Thank you for being here. Um, Did we miss anything? No. Uh, Well, you know what? The most, the thing that I'm most um, interested in right now is being a mom and being and trying to get it right the first time. But who knows? Um, But I think that's the most important description of how I identify these days. Motherhood to a five-year-old who is as independent as uh, any person I know. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your early life, where you grew up, and kind of what led you to the path you're on now. Whew. You know, look, I grew up in a small town uh, in Mississippi, Magnolia, Mississippi. Shout out to South Pike Eagles. Um, I My dad was sick for my entire uh, sort of childhood. He had heart disease, and so we spent a lot of time in... Uh, Louisiana. I have uh, half siblings uh, that live in Baton Rouge, and my dad was uh, hospitalized a lot in Auctioner Hospital in New Orleans. Uh, and so I like to say I grew up in both Louisiana and Mississippi um, and had the uh, sort of experience of having my uh, life sort of informed by the politics of the region in which I lived. I went to a historically black college. I had college professors who were SNCC organizers and spent time in Macomb jails during Freedom Summer. I had professors who were, you know, lawyers by by training and who were adjudicating some of the biggest public education uh, fights for historically black colleges at the time. And, you know, that was that was a lot of what I was surrounded by. And so it's those sort of pioneers, sort of pre-generate of my prior generation um, that sort of informed uh, how I see the world, um, how I experience right and wrong, um, and how I try to fight for, uh, for justice. Um, and that's sort of what... What got me here? I thought I was going to be like them. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, and, you know, sort of life just took me on a, on a different path. I started working for SCIU two weeks after I graduated from college. Yeah. Um, my first assignment for SCIU was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
Uh, and for a poor kid that grew up in the South, having to go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was a culture shock of all culture shocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, another opportunity to sort of frame right and wrong for me, um, where Milwaukee at the time was categorized as one of the most segregated cities uh, in the country. Uh, and I could see it um, live while I was talking to non-union home care workers. Um, and, you know, different parts of uh, Milwaukee where black communities, uh, brown communities, underinvested, um, lacking adequate housing and jobs and economic opportunity. And, and they were looking for and trying to find political power and sort of power to change their circumstances through SEIU. And um, those are the kinds of things that sort of shaped how I came to California in 2009. Uh, after working for SEIU all over the country, I, there was an opportunity to, to try to make a difference with home care workers here in Los Angeles. And um, I was living in Baltimore at the time. I was a National Property Services Division Director for SEIU, and I wanted a chance to come and, and try to be a part of the lives of workers who reminded me so much of my mom, who were caregivers and, and health care workers who were uh, trying to find a better future for themselves and, and their children. Um, and so that's what I got a chance to do, and I've been blessed. Uh, I really, really have been blessed to be able to work with and for um, everyday workers who were trying to make uh, their lives better for the sake of their children. That's amazing. You have um, quite a journey um, <laughs> across the country. Literally. Uh, literally across the country. Um Maybe you could tell us a little bit what you're working on now, currently. You know, I am back in California after a year working uh, with Senator Harris, again, across the country, uh, in her effort to uh, be the president, next president of the United States. And so I'm back in Los Angeles, and uh, there's always the, the beautiful part about, about Los Angeles and about California, there's always lots of progressive initiatives happening, whether it's uh, the fight for criminal just criminal justice reform or opportunities to elect progressive uh, uh, politicians, um, or there are just issue at issue advocacy that's happening in communities that have been forgotten. Uh, one of the things that I'm working on right now is a project in Compton. Um, Historically, Compton has been sort of uh, disinvested, whether it's you know public dollars or philanthropic dollars. Um, it's a city of a hundred thousand residents um, now, mostly Latino residents, um, where people would would have assumed that Compton is a, a majority African American community. Just as the demographics of Los Angeles writ large are changing. The demographics of, of Compton have changed uh, as well. But, you know, the amazing thing about the city of Compton is like there's 100,000 residents. There's one public library uh, <laughs> in Compton, the city of Compton. Wow. <laughs> Compton, according to the uh, County Department of Public Health, Compton has um, some of the highest incidence of STIs, uh, sexually transmitted infections, um, starting in middle school. Um, and so a uh, uh, partner that I um, got very familiar with as working with um, SEIU was St. John's uh, Well Child and Family Center. 
Uh, they are one of the largest health providers in the city of Compton, serving about 35% of Compton residents. Uh, and they want to launch a healthy Compton campaign. And uh, I want to continue my work to work with and for families, workers, communities that have that have been forgotten. Um, our kids deserve more than one library for every hundred thousand residents. <laughs> it's like, how do you get away with that? You know, I, you like, know we got to ask ourselves <laughs> that question. It's like, you know, we can we could talk about Compton as it relates to movies um, mm-hmm. and celebrities, um, but what about the kids that are that are yeah. there, whose lives are at stake, whose opportunities are uh, arrested? Uh, what kind of message are we sending to the kids? What kind of like, message are we like, sending? <laughs> <laughs> One wow. public library. One, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm glad you're working you know, on that campaign in Compton and with St. John's. They've done a lot of great work through the years for LA. Yep. Um, and so you mentioned uh, you came back from the Kamala campaign. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about your role within the Kamala campaign and how that evolved you know, it was, it's interesting. I I thought I was was um, slowing my life down. I had sort of made the decision to uh, that it was my time to sort of hand the mantle of leadership over at SEIU 2015 after 10 years of working with those members, um, and I, and it was time for me to really focus on being a parent. Um, and the senator who I met as a part of uh, working on behalf of home care workers, um, we became really familiar. And um, she started to really think about whether she could make a difference in this election. Um, and my firm, the firm that I joined after I left SCIU, um, SCRB Strategies, uh, was historically the senator's political consulting firm. So uh, I was able to sort of join her team and in overall effort as a senior advisor, national senior advisor. What I worked on initially was I put a lot of time and attention into South Carolina um, as the sort of first primary of um, really diverse state. Um, I wanted to make sure that the campaign was really doing everything that it could to um, introduce Senator Harris to South Carolinians and the leadership uh, across that state. And I learned a lot. You know, I, I, I learned a lot about um, envir- the environmental issues that we uh, in California can think are unique to California, um, whether it's the sort of um, Exide um, battery contamination in East L.A., um, there, there are communities in South Carolina that are living with similar kinds of uh, environmental devastation. A city named by the name of Denmark, South Carolina, where kids every day going to school and drinking water out of lead pipes uh, don't have. Literally, the entire community is getting served um, bottles of water. Um, and so I learned I learned an incredible amount about some inc- uh, very special communities all over the country. Um, South Carolina, I spent a lot of time in Nevada, um, really understanding the issues that are important to Nevada residents and what they were looking for in a presidential candidate. And by the end of the campaign, really um, had evolved 
from a sort of senior advisor that was just focused on a couple states to uh, really being intimately involved in the sort of day-to-day operations of the campaign, whether it was staffing uh, or budget, um, really work, trying to work with the, with the um, in-house team mm-hmm. to be as supportive as I could given my experience running an organization uh, of that size and scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we spent a lot of time with the senator as she was making her decision to uh, to suspend her campaign and really um, focus on trying to, she knew that she had the impeachment trial uh, coming up and really felt like her constitutional duty was to represent Californians uh, in that uh, really historic moment in our, in our country. And I thought she did a great job and, uh, and we'll see what, what else happens in her future. Okay. Um, and so uh, Kamala, she's, from my experience through, you know, 2015 in Southern California, she's always been very popular, um, throughout the state. Mm -hmm. Um, what failed to translate nationally? I don't know if it was a failure to translate as much as it is a sort of uniqueness of this moment. Um, there was a, a historic number of candidates in this race. 25 at the time that she started running. A number of them uh, were national names that were already well known, and the senator spent a lot of her time having to introduce herself to the country. And um, this is a moment where the time that I spent with voters across the country, um, what people want really wanted was um, somebody who could win. Um, they just don't want to have to experience another four years <laughs> yeah. of this, of this president, yeah. and so I think I think it's less uh, it was less an experience of not being able to translate or connect. The senator met any number of uh, benchmarks that would be considered like outstanding by in any other presidential contest, um, but I think this is a moment of of hyper. Um, concern um, and really focusing on beating beating Donald, Donald Trump, and um, she had to uh, continue to introduce herself. Uh, and so, I think that the sky is the limit for her. There was so much support, uh, whether it was the twenty two thousand people that came to, to Oakland at her launch, uh, or the two thousand people that you know showed up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, there was any, there was all kinds of excitement uh, about her. I think, you know, big shout out to the K Hive that's on that exists in social media. They are were awesome grassroots supporters. Um, they've been just in, were just incredible supporters and continue to be uh, an active um, group on online. Um, and and I, I I am really excited about what Senator Harris has to offer the country in terms of her vision and her fight. Um, and folks in California have had twenty five years to get to know her. Uh, and she just has yeah. get, get a little bit more time to introduce herself to the rest of the country. I'm excited. Um, I think there's more to come from Kamala. I don't, I don't think she's done. She's so young. She's got plenty of fight. Um, what was the biggest lesson you learned during the Kamala campaign, mm. if there was one? There were tons. Um, <laughs> one of the lessons, I think, organiz- as, a, as a leader in an or- in, of an organization, I think... Um, there's a lot of responsibility that's placed on the on the top person, the candidate, 
uh, him or herself. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of responsibility that is sort of that falls on the frontline organizers, the folks on the ground whose job it is to turn people out to events or to get political endorsements. Um, and the lesson that I learned is that management in the middle, the quality of management in the middle is so, so important. And I, I knew that from my experience at, at SEIU and running different operations, but I got a chance to have that lesson reaffirmed um, as it relates to sort of organizational design and leadership and how you really think about and build out uh, teams. Mm-hmm. That level of, um, it really is an art um, to think about how to create um, a team and doing that on a front end is really, really important. I guess another lesson that I learned um, that just everyday voters taught me, no matter what state I happen to be in, um, is that fear is a powerful force. Um, And sometimes um, there are communities that get written off as apathetic or not engaged. and what when you really sit in those living rooms and you you know you talk with the uh, those voters, what really is happening in those communities? Our folks are just um, paralyzed by the by the fear of what could happen um, with the their family's future, and they are so focused on creating the best opportunity um, that they can that some of the uh, intellectual arguments that we have among, in the Democratic Party, they find just um, irrelevant uh, to their everyday. And so um, electorally uh, and sort of in politics, I, I learned that relevance is key, um, that fear is, uh, is powerful, um, but that in order to really meet voters where they are, which is a cliche that every organizer, um, no matter what they're organizing for, uh, that, that relevance is just, is just incredibly important. So, so how do we overcome that fear? You know, you say people get paralyzed by, by it, but like, mm-hmm. how, how do we overcome that? Through inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... You look at then Senator Obama, who became President Obama, what he was masterful at um, was sort of connecting uh, with all those things that we all have in common and calling us to our higher, better selves. Um, We've spent as a nation the last three years having a leader who um, uh, does not call us to that higher space, Mm -hmm. but frankly, begs us to the bottom, um, to meet him at the bottom. And so I, I think that a way that has been demonstrated um, electorally, I think with, with President Obama is, is that inspiration. And even when you look in, at community campaigns, um, whether it's issues like Compton or criminal justice reform or fighting for the minimum wage, it is that everybody wanted to be inspired by um and a aspiration that was sort of reaching. They knew their worth, their, they were worth more than seven twenty-five or $8 or $12. Um, but they wanted to be inspired by, you know, some group of people, some um, by their own voices in validating uh, that they were, that they deserved to be paid more. Um, and victories matter, you know, small victories 
whether it was the, you know, small cities uh, that came first uh, or larger cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles. Um, small LA victories matter. LA was first, just to clarify. Those small victories, those small victories matter. I think, you know, there are some smaller cities mm-hmm. in Northern Cal that, that uh, got the ball rolling. And uh, when people saw what, what was possible, um, they're like, you know, why not me? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so being being called, I think, to a to a higher belief, mm-hmm. um, I think, is incredibly important to moving past that fear. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll ever inspire people to vote for something by telling them what they're against. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the challenges that I see currently is that the, our organizing messages are about those things that we ought to be afraid of or those yeah. things that we ought to be um, uh uh, angry about, as opposed to those things that that we want to achieve for not only for ourselves but for our neighbors. Mm-hmm. I want fifteen dollars for me, but I also want fifteen dollars for my neighbor, and that will you know inspire me to talk to my neighbor. Um, so that's what I that's what I think. Those are some of the things that I've that I've learned. It's been an incredible journey and opportunity. Mm-hmm. A lot of it um, really grounded in the work that I that I've done with SCIU and. Um, Hopefully, I can continue to add value to you know the lives of those members as they have added value to my own life. Um, so now let's kind of talk a little bit over to the labor side sure, from the Kamala let's campaign. Do it. Let's do it. So coming These from great tacos, go for whatever you want. <laughs> coming from being the president of SEIU 2015, mm-hmm. an organization which represents over 400,000 caregivers now in California. So how did it feel to take a step back from being the president of an organization where kind of everyone looked to you to to be the woman behind the woman? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, for me, it was kind of strange when I saw you on the campaign trail walking behind Kamala, because mm-hmm. I always seen you as the woman in front and everyone's walking <laughs> behind you, staffing you, and you were walking behind. So so how, mm-hmm. how was that transition or how did that feel? Fascinating. Um, look, my, my, my decision to leave SEIU was... Uh, a layered one. Um, it had a lot to do with what I felt, where I felt like I was in my own life, and and my desire to be present for my daughter, um, and knowing that those members deserve a leader who can like where where their livelihood is their number one focus. I just had gotten to a point in my own personal life where I needed to put my my kid first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also hope that it was an example. So m- much of my time in the labor movement was um, looking to um, people in their 70s um, and who had been at their local unions for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um um, my intention was to um, acknowledge that my contribution had been significant and that it w- is okay to make room for others. Had I not left, there would have been, you know, there would have been no room for April to uh, emerge as uh, the next president or for Derek Smith to move to an executive vice president. Had I not left, those opportunities would have been decades away. For those folks who were ready to make you know valuable contributions for for themselves, and so I I, I wanted to live my truth 
um, and be the example that I felt like um, was missing. Uh, that it's that it's okay to leave. <laughs> that you can have a you can have a life and you can have significant impact yeah. um, without holding on to positions for you know twenty five thirty years. Um, and so, to your question about what was it like to then you know be in the supporting cast uh, of someone else's story? Look, I, I I think that life is about knowing how to play a lot of positions. Um, one of the most valuable lessons that I've had and refer to a lot in my own leadership is being on a, on a team. I played basketball as a kid. Um, and, you know, I had a, a number of coaches who, you know, really emphasized the importance of like working together and working with others. And I always used to say at SEIU, uh, you know, you don't win a championship with five point guards. You know, everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a time to play their role. Um, not everybody is in the game all at once. And so my time at SCIU gave me an opportunity to play a lot of different positions. Um, it gave me an opportunity to, to be on the court uh, and in the game and, and you know, shoot my shot. Uh, and, and then I had to learn how to play a different position. Um, and I am grateful to Senator Harris for giving me the opportunity to learn how to play different positions. I said in a radio spot where somebody asked me a very similar question at the time, one of the lessons I really was uh, grappling with and I'm grateful that I got an opportunity to learn is to your point, you know, what is it like uh, to not be the person in power or having authority and uh, learning a lesson between uh, authority and influence and how to use them both, I think, is also a valuable tool uh, that one should have in their toolbox. Maybe you could talk. What's the difference between authority and you mm-hmm. know power? Like, mm-hmm. how, how would you differentiate the two? Mm-hmm. You know, look. I, as a leader of the union, I had the authority granted to me by the members of the union uh, and the executive board to make decisions and execute uh, on their behalf. I didn't have to get. Uh, I had, didn't have to convince someone else. You were right. <laughs> you just was, had to know you right, were right. I just had to like get a conversation going with our members, and our and you know these Monday morning calls that every week like they were it was about building consensus uh, across the union, not only with the members but also with the staff. Um, and but once we had consensus, I could direct um, the I could uh, direct the the um, strategy. I could uh, direct the tactics, and and we were sort of off and running. And whenever I had a uh, there was a change in plan, I always sort of came back to the members and said, "Hey, you know, this is what's happening. This is the way that I think we should go. What do you guys think?" And, and I that was. I experienced that really as having the authority and fr- and responsibility uh, to to um, to execute. Now, this this notion of influence, right? That is that's a different that's a different thing. Um, with Senator Harris in particular, she had to make the decision. It's her name that's on the sign, not mine. <laughs> it's her face that is on uh, on the screen. Um, and frankly, it's her reputation and credibility uh, that she is offering to the country, not mine. 
Um, and so what I needed to learn how to do was not to direct or to um, sort of organize the process by which we got to consensus. Uh, my job was to give her my advice and try to build my case such that I was able to influence the decision that that she ultimately uh, that she ultimately made. And so it's a it's a different thing. It's a different rhythm. Uh, definitely, mm-hmm. it's a different rhythm. Influence takes a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of patience, I'd imagine. A lot of patience, patience has right? to come along yeah. with influence. And I'm again grateful for the opportunity to be able to sharpen those skills and develop those skills. Mm-hmm. And so um, with kind of the labor movement we were talking about, so what role do you see the labor movement playing in the future of, I guess, progressive politics? Mm-hmm. Look, I think the labor movement will continue to be um, critical um, to uh, creating a more just society. Um, and, I, and I choose my words carefully, intentionally, um, I think that the more divisive language we use, the more partisan language we use, the deeper the divide becomes. Um, There are people who identify as Democrats who don't identify as progressive. Um, And their voice should be validated, too. Um, and so I think that the uh, and the labor movement uh, are full of members who don't even identify as Democrats, and their voices should be validated too. And so I think um, that in order to uh, inspire people to become engaged in creating a more just society, we have to create room, uh, even with our language, uh, to make sure that they feel like there is a place for them. Um, to participate. And I think that the labor movement will be critical in that. There are working families all over this country who joined the union um, to create more just societies in their workplace um, and in their communities. And I think that the more the labor movement is able to embrace um, all voices uh, in their membership, but all voices in their communities, in the in the communities in which the members sort of work and live, um, that they they will continue to be powerhouses uh, in 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 politics and in in creating in creating change. Um, one of the things that that I felt like SCIU 2015 was really good at, um, because of the uniqueness of the work that our members did was to see our members as whole people. Um, They didn't go to to a factory to go to work, right? Mm -hmm. They went to work in somebody's home. Um, And and so their workplace safety meant something very different, right? It meant that they needed to have um, safe sidewalks. It meant that they needed to have stop signs. And you you know, you Mm -hmm. remember these fights. You know, I remember remember Mario Torres and Salinas, like, was one of his first uh, events as a leader in the union was to organize his neighbors to get a stop sign put up in their community where so many young people had been hit by cars that were moving, that were uh, like speeding down the street. And so the power of the union is not in, in my opinion, is not just in, it's not just in training people to be leaders on behalf of the labor movement. 
It is really about, I think, creating opportunity to, for people to see their and, uh, and actualize their own leadership and then take that and use it to change their communities. Um, and so I th in that way, in terms of creating a more just society, the labor movement will continue to be a strong voice for, um, uh, of course, wages and benefits, and uh, of course, social mobility and economic mobility and economic fairness. Uh, and I think that there's so much, so many more crises that are facing uh, the next generation of workers, whether it's the environment um, or um, uh, racial justice. I think. Those are also places where the labor movement will also be critical in, in creating that, that, those conversations and that space for, for leadership. So what are some of the biggest mistakes right now that the labor movement is making that's, you know, that's holding them back from you know, the results that they want to see? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think that they're making big mistakes. I, I think, you know, I'm only a, a year removed uh, from the from the labor movement, I don't I don't see big mistakes. I I think that the labor movement today is being bold. It's making big demands. That fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage, people thought that was crazy, right? And so, but now it's like the norm, right? And so, I think the boldness of the labor movement is right on. They are taking on uh, this emerging technology economy uh, with. Things like AB5 and, and other uh, efforts in organizing, you know, quote unquote gig workers uh, and uh, fast food workers and retail workers. And uh, I, I think that the labor movement is their boldness and their ideas uh, right now are right on. What I think uh, that I could have done better as a labor leader uh, is uh, engaging young workers um, empowering the voices and uh, leadership of uh, young workers. If we don't invest in, sort of in my own reflection, uh, if, if I'm not investing in the youngest of our activists, I am um, participating in the staleness of our leadership. Uh, and so I think that in order to continue to be bold and to continue to have big vision and big ideas, we've got to empower and engage uh, those uh, young leaders who's, who are already thinking about like the next generation of, of uh, fights and, and the next generation uh, of justice. And then on our next generation of leaders, you know, within the movement, if you were talking to them to inspire them about like the, you know, how critical this time is right now, and, and sometimes you know, they're starting off, maybe they're an organizer on the front line, and, and they don't see you know, 20 years from now how they've come up. And you know, I've been in the movement personally for like 10 years now, and, and it's amazing to see all the people that I kind of began with are coming into these leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's really amazing to see. So maybe you can talk a little bit of on to our next generation of leaders and, and give them a little bit of inspiration. Uh, it, it's a great question. I think not a lot of uh, time and attention really is, um, is paid to, to developing that next generation of leaders, not with the intention with which they deserve. So if I had to give that next generation of leaders some advice, you know, I'd be probably... 
you know, demand your space um, at the table. People do a lot of, you know, leaders who've been around for a long time do a lot of lip service. Uh, and, or they relegate um, young leaders to, oh, well, you can be the digital organizer. <laughs> or yeah. You can be the social media person. Right. Um, but, you know, but never really um, trusted to give real authority and decision making to. Um, and so, like, I would say to young leaders, like, don't be quiet until you have a real place at the table. Um I probably I wish I had done a lot more of that as I was growing up in SEIU. Um, the other piece of advice uh, that I would give uh, to young leaders is um, seek first to understand before being understood. Uh, old advice uh, that's been around forever, um, but it is important, I think, for the future of our democracy and for the justice that we all seek to create, um, that we take the time to understand one another's journey and our walk and our experiences and our differences. And that we, as much as we celebrate the things that we have in common, the things that, are, that we don't have in common are just as valuable. Um, and without understanding that and knowing where someone is coming from, it's easy to sort of pop off into the next big argument or the next thing that is that that divides our community, um, and and I think that we've got to intentionally try to understand uh, that we are alike and that we are different, and celebrate both. Kind of coming back a little bit to Kamala. Mm -hmm. So my theory is when she <laughs> stepped out, right, mm -hmm. is that when Biden if he were to win, that she would be the VP for him. <laughs> what would you think about that? Anything is possible. Here's the thing that I know about Senator Harris. Yeah. She didn't run for president to be anybody's vice president. She ran for president because she thought she had a vision for the country um, that was one where people could belong um, and that we could fight for the best of who we are. Now, would she make a great vice president? Absolutely. She would make a fantastic vice president. Um, she would make a fantastic attorney general. We've had her right. as attorney general in California. We know what she is capable of. I am holding out um, hope that, you know, whatever is the next Democratic administration, that she's a part of it. Okay. Excellent. And so we're kind of coming down to the end of the questions. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, um, these are kind of a little bit more personal questions. Sure. So, let's so do it. what inspires you these days? Like, <laughs> my daughter inspires me these days. And um, she is, she's the only child, she is fiercely independent. And, um, opinionated and sort of strong-willed at the same time, very kind uh, and and caring. And I always sort of think that she's the leader that Nelson Mandela refers to in his book, A, A Long Walk to Freedom. She's the leader who knows how to lead from the front, 
but she also knows how to lead from the back. And it's great to sort of see her with her little friends and in her little community. Um, be the kid who can lead everybody to the playground, but also be the kid who makes sure that nobody gets left behind. So as a you know a father as well as yeah. a five-year-old so what what do you do to help teach your daughter leadership skills and, and kind of the skills that you want her to have moving forward yeah I affirm what is already there um it's fascinating I'm sure you experience this as well it's fascinating to see what is already in there um and sort of see when it and when when it sort of shows up be amazed um but then you I think our job is to sort of nurture those things. Um, so when she has an opinion about what she wants to do or what she wants to wear, I don't tell her, no, you can't wear that. Um, I might have a conversation with her about why you don't want to wear shorts when it's 55 degrees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can have a logical yeah. conversation. 55 for Los Angeles is cold. Exactly. Okay. Really, that's freezing. Uh, exactly. So, you know, I, I just feel like my job is to, uh, is to strengthen what's already there, um, to affirm her voice, to be uh, a protector um, when she needs it, and to, you know, be an observer. Uh, when that's needed too and like figuring out how to be what she needs at any given moment is really the, I think the hard part mm-hmm. uh, is really really the hard part uh, about being a parent and who knew I, I had no idea what it was like <laughs> <laughs> and I always sort of criticized my mom you didn't do this you didn't tell me that yeah. blah blah it's like yeah it is really hard just do the best you can <laughs> just do the best you can <laughs> but she is such an inspiration for me because it's just it's it's why it's why when I left SEIU at the peak of my career, folks might might have described, um, I took the opportunity to, instead of going off and doing any number of different things, I chose to work for Senator Harris. It's like I owed my daughter the um, opportunity to see a black woman as the president of the United States. Um, and if she ever does it again, I think my daughter and all, every other person's uh, a uh, person of color in particular, uh, who has a daughter, even those who have a son, as now as I actually think about it, like seeing, acknowledging the fact that black women uh, can lead uh, and lead in a way that is compassionate, but also very firm, can be a fighter and be a diplomat. Uh, I, I felt like I owed her that opportunity. And so uh, she inspires a lot of how I think in a lot of what I do, and I just try to be the best parent I can be and not not screw up that sort of natural, um, those natural talents that she already has. That's great. Beautiful. Um, I think this is probably the last one before we have, we're going to have just a quick lightning round after. All right, just quick, all right. I get to know lightning. the truth. I can do lightning. Okay, this is the last <laughs> personal question. Um, What's different about how you approach your work as a black LGBTQ woman and how others who don't belong to these groups approach their work? And is there a difference? I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't speak to other people's sort of journey and experience um, without engaging them meaningfully in what that means to them. I, can, I know what those identities uh, mean for me. Um, as it relates to like my responsibility to other uh, black women uh, or black LGBT women um, and in places of, of leadership, it, it you are never not a black woman. Um, 
And where, whereas you might not know uh, that I am uh, in a relationship with a woman, but I can never not be black. And so that is uh, something that I think is an incredibly important part of, of my identity and responsibility to other black women and frankly, my community writ large is to um, make sure as a leader, I'm showing up with the grace and dignity that other black women deserve. Um, I know that when I'm in a room of mostly not people who look like me, <laughs> particularly in, when that was my experience and in the labor movement, I had to um, represent all of those women and bring all of those women to the table. Um, and that was the beauty of, of representing the women that I, that I worked for. Um, it's a real point of pride to work for so many women and women of color. Um, who were members of SCIU 2015. Um, and, you know, I, the, the labor movement is a place that is, as I've said before, and, and someone, <clears throat> Andy Stern, used to describe the labor movement uh, as male, stale, and pale. Mm-hmm. And that was absolutely my experience. And so being a black woman in that space, um, with the authority that I had on behalf of uh, mostly women of color was an incredible responsibility. And it informs how I show up. It informs um, um, the decisions that I make. It informs like the words that I choose, um, making sure that, that those women, as I said, are, are represented with the dignity that they, that they deserve. And so... As that relates to somebody else's experience, you know, I don't know. I I think we all have different experiences. You can put me and another black lesbian uh, side by side, and we we would have a different journey. And so, I feel like my my responsibility is to not have judgment about theirs, but to inform them of mine. All right. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to move on to a quick little lightning round. You Let's can kind of give me some short, short answers, short, quick answers. Yep. All right. The truth, nothing but the truth. <laughs> All right. Donuts or ice cream? Ice cream. Who's the funniest person you know? <laughs> My daughter. What subjects did you hate in school? Uh, Spanish and PE. Your favorite sports team? The Celtics. I'm sorry you said that. (laughs) Go Lakers. Long live Kobe. Respect. Moment of silence for Kobe. (laughs) Moment of silence. Okay. All right. What else else you got? Uh, Favorite athlete? Favorite athlete, Bill Russell. Favorite musical artist or band? Mm, Yolanda Adams. Favorite video producer and photographer? Chris Oliveris. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, what's the best part about being a mom? Uh, the different things that can happen in any moment. <laughs> <laughs> Excitement. What annoys you? What annoys me? Lateness. I noticed that when you showed up, I'm like, LaFond is on time. Of course she's on time. Of course she's on time. Um, what's your favorite curse word? Uh, see, this was one of the things that the senator and I actually have in common. It is an, a word that begins with F and ends in K. Okay. <laughs> it's my favorite curse word. Okay. 
Um, how many days can you wear jeans before washing them? Oh, a solid three. Solid three. Okay. In a row? Yeah. Oh, yeah, solid three. Solid three. Solid three. Solid three. Okay. Um, what's a good book you recently read? Um, you know, there's a book by a guy, um, Wood, Wood Fox, Alfred Wood Fox, who spent 40 years in solitary confinement in Angola prison, penitentiary. Uh, and I just finished his, I just finished it. It's called Solitary actually, uh, and it was, I think, an incredible read for anyone who is interested in criminal justice reform and the uh, tortures uh, that it creates. Uh, there's no rehabilitation in 40 years of solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, if you could have dinner with anyone from history, who would it be? <laughs> Um, Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou. What are your top three core values? Your personal core values. My value. personal core values are integrity, uh, honesty, and objectivity. Do you believe in ghosts? No. Okay. And uh, I think that concludes our podcast for today. <laughs> that was a great question. <laughs> I got to so, say you changed them up, but that yeah. was good. That was so, good. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. This was great and great tacos. Yeah, so I wanted to thank you so much for, for taking your time to be here. Um, I just want you to know when we first thought about the idea of the podcast, I was thinking, who's the one person that inspires me that you know, as a person, not only their position, but the way they carry themselves and the way they treat others. Um, you're the first person that comes to mind. So I wanted to thank you for being here and taking your time uh, to be here. It matters a lot. You are an incredible talent and uh, not much I wouldn't do for you, brother. So I appreciate it. Thank you. And anything I can do for you in the future, please, you know. You got I, it. I got you. You got and, it. And when Kamala becomes president of the United States and she needs a presidential photographer. You're first on the list. Boom! <laughs> you guys heard that. All right. I'll clean up. I'll her shave. Decision, her decision to make. Uh, but you're good at influence. You got that influence. I'll shave. I'll shave if I need to. All right. Um, thank you so much, LaFonza. Of course. Thank you, guys.